Hello, you're listening to Copy Time, a podcast series from Markets and Economies from TBS Group Research. I'm Temur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 76th episode. My dear listeners and viewers, today's guest is not like anyone we've had in Copy Time history. Sia Lian works for Gojek as the Singapore General Manager and also leads the driver operations across all countries. Gojek is a Southeast Asian online platform providing access to services including transport, payments, food delivery, and logistics. Before Gojek, Lian worked at McKinsey, where he was based in China and spent time in Sierra Leone helping deal with Ebola. Prior to that, Lian was a commando officer in the Singapore Armed Forces, where he led a battalion and was in East Timor as a UN peacekeeper. An avid adventurer, and this is where the differentiating part comes in, <laughs> Lian is the first guest in COVID time to have climbed the tallest peaks in the world, including Mount Everest and K2. He has done things like run 250-kilometer ultramarathons through Amazon jungles and the Gobi Desert, and he's done all sorts of expeditions in the North Pole and South Pole. Now, that's a renaissance man for you. See you, Lian. Welcome to COVID time. Hey, time. A real pleasure to be here. And uh, running podcasts you know, are really not easy. 76 editions is even more impressive. So a real, real, real pleasure to be here. Yeah, just a little easier than running 250 kilometers. <laughs> um, Lian, uh, let's start by talking about your motivation. Um, you have done a lot of physically demanding pursuits in your life. Uh, then, of course, you know, you kind of settled down and did some desk stuff. But how did your journey all the way to Gojek uh, transpire? Hmm. I guess I'll speak a little bit about the adventure stuff. Uh, it's, it's 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 a good story. Um, probably you know runs through three stages. Uh, when you're young, you are young, foolhardy, reckless, but you are out to explore. You don't know what you don't know, and uh, that was with my climbing journey. The first time you climb, it's really to see what it's all. What what is what is this all about? What is the experience? Somebody asks you, and you go on a trip. And I've got a good story about that, but. Uh, the first, the first, uh, first trip, uh, which kind of had some good learning lessons, uh, went became a second trip and a third trip. And after a while, you want to become a little bit better. You want to have a little bit more mastery. You want to challenge yourself a little bit more. You want to see a little bit more of the uh, the bigger names that people have been talking about, the story, uh, peaks and mountains and trips and places that have been written about and. That probably is the second arc. And then as you sort of get into the later stages, you do it because you really enjoy doing it. Uh, I'm you know, probably still somewhere between the second and the third stage. I try to do a trip you know, every year. Uh, so that's on the, on the personal side uh, in terms of adventure. I'll tell a very short story though, which is this foolhardy, uh, uh, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, that's why there's a survivor sort of statistic that if you make it past the first few months of any product or company, then you're probably okay. The first time I went to climb a mountain, I had with me on my climb towards the summit, I was wondering why everyone was moving much faster than I was. It was in California, it's a mountain called Shasta. And I realized that, you know, they all have very light packs. And I noted to myself that in my pack, I had this really heavy book called The Freedom of the Hills. And anyone who's familiar with it knows that it is the Bible of climbing, which also means that it is a good, you know, several kilo tome. And I had, you know, things like my 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 heavy torchlight, uh, talking about mag light, just huge metal contraption. So anyway, long story short is I ditched all my stuff. I managed to make it 
into the peak uh, at the cutoff time, the very last person to be allowed on that day. So from those rather inauspicious beginnings, be- became this pretty much a lifelong love affair with climbing in the outdoors. So uh, if you survive the first few times and you kind of enjoy it, then hopefully you'll carry on doing it, whatever endeavor it is. Leon, we'll, we'll talk about the transition into Gojek in a second, but I just want to want, ask one specific question. Okay, going up the mountain is one thing, but running across a desert for 250 kilometers seems like a absolutely insane order of pain. Why would you subject yourself to that? Uh, it's good scenery. <laughs> so, there are a bunch of ultra marathons now, and uh, people can talk about uh, the meditative aspects of it. The terrain, I mean, it is beautiful. First, I'll start off with it is really beautiful. When you're running across a desert, and some are really, I've got some nice pictures on my blog, uh, adventureswithlian.com. But uh, if you are out in the desert and the sand use, like full, full on deserts, uh, it's really amazing. And some of the deserts are massive, like the ones in Namibia. And there you can actually see for each, each dune and in between each, each sand dune. These are parallel sand dunes. They're so big, they can actually see it on a satellite map. We're talking about a kilometer or two. So you can kind of see one kilometer away. If you're in the sand dunes in the Gobi, you're literally seeing one hump away. And then you're just doing that for hours and hours on end. And you really can't tell what's beyond except that, you know, uh, 50 meters from, from now, I've got another sand dune to deal with. So even sand dunes are different. Even deserts are different. If you're in the Atacama Desert, it is just a flat expense. And there you can kind of see people from really far away. So the first point is sand is different. Sand dunes are different. The geography is different. If you're in the Amazon jungle, 40 plus degrees Celsius, 90 over percent humidity, kind of sounds like Singapore, but even even warmer. It's a, it's a different type of heat, a different type of discomfort, but a different type of beauty as well. All right. The ability to appreciate the diversity of our amazing world. Uh, all right, so the journey to Gojek. Journey to Gojek uh, started off in the military and then subsequently uh, it became a, you know, left, uh, left after battalion command and became a management consultant. And I think, you know, these, these two experiences kind of learned a, learned a lot from them, but always knew that I want to be back in an operating role in a, in a commercial environment. And that pretty pretty much brought me to Gojek. The trajectory has always been something China, uh, Southeast Asia, along that vector. So, uh, you know, Gojek spoke to me. I really, really, really liked what uh, what we were doing. And I said, you know, it really makes sense. Uh, so that's how I joined Gojek. So, Lian, given the physically demanding pursuits of your past life, and I'm here that, you know, you're not actually completely devoid of doing that. You still are squeezing in a couple of trips or at least one trip a year. Um, so you talked a little bit about your appreciation for the geodiversity in the world or, you know, the meditative aspect and so on. So what are the values and practices from your, you know, physical world that you were bringing to the world of tech and e-commerce? Hmm. All of it is a piece where the... I mean, you, you come to the table with everything that you are and you can kind of pull out pieces, but I'd say you come to the table with everything that you are that has shaped you to be the person that you are. I'll probably try to pull out a few as much as you can ascribe to single instances. The military is very much about leadership, but 
again, the leadership in the military is very different at different levels. If you're a young platoon commander in the special forces, it's about direct leadership. It is about looking your men in men in, well, for me, just men, right? Looking your men in the eyes, being the first to jump out of the plane, leading the run from the front. As you move up the ranks, then you start being a leader of leaders. And even though you, you can have direct line of sight of the people that you lead, but you primarily interact with managing your commanders and making sure that you provide very good intent, very good direction. And then when you move even up further, then you don't even have line of sight with the, with the people that you lead. And it's very much around organizational change. And that, I think, transitions or segues very well into my time as a consultant. I'd say a large part of my projects involved a significant proportion of organizational change. And you know that, but you know that the speed of ground execution is actually much slower. I can draw a PowerPoint and move an org chart around in, you know, in, in an hour. But for that to actually flow through the system and for the ramifications of the skills, capabilities, raising the, the teams, I mean, those time cycles are in the time cycles of years, months, months, if not years. So I'd say skills, things I learned, right? What does leadership mean at the personal level? What does leadership mean at uh, organizational level or leading through leaders? So that's really from both uh, military and McKinsey uh, or as a management consultant. I think the second one is learning uh, or just being very, very clear what your objective is. Asking the right questions and creating an environment where the people, the team and yourself can come up with the right answers. So I'll probably just leave with these these two things, or maybe a third one is uh, and always being being very calm. Um, frequently, I'm asked, uh, you know, your greatest strength. And when I was younger, I'd be, oh, how smart I am, how strong I am, how fit I am, how aggressive I am, how much I get things done. Now I just say that calm is contagious. Uh, when you're calm, you de-escalate the, the the emotions. When you're calm, you de-escalate the anxiety. And then everyone can come to a better solution. So right now, I'm calm is probably something that I take from the different things that I've done in my life. That's great. Uh, earlier today, I was listening to somebody say that, you know, things are never really as good as, as they seem, and they're never really as bad as they seem. And I think that sort of yep. feeds into your point that uh, don't react too much to what's happening right now. This too will pass, whether it's good or bad. Um, Leon, uh, I'm going to ask you the question that I normally start my podcast with these days, which is how did you and your company deal with the pandemic? Well, uh, you know, everyone talks about pandemic and pandemic scarring and, uh, hopefully I, I won't even say anything about what the future looks like and <laughs> not, not, not using it. I'll probably offer an op- uh, a sort of macro observation and then some individual things that we did. Macro observation was this early on. Uh, people talked about different kinds of recovery, L-shape, K-shape, or you know whatever particular alphabet that you have in mind. Uh, but it is true. There are people who, if you're frontline staff, you still stay on the frontline. And there are people, so there are people where you could do your work virtually, but it's still an hour of work, uh, more, more or less. So a teacher, teachers during that period spent an hour on a Zoom classroom rather than an hour in a classroom. And I know there's a lot more back-end and front-end work, but roughly work is still an hour except you're delivering it virtually. There were some people where the work evaporated. These were your uh, in the early periods, whether it's F&B, whether anything frontline where the demand disappeared, such as uh, marketing events. And unfortunately, many of these roles had to re-roll. I'd say for people in a managerial capacity or managerial roles, the work is not proportional to volume. 
the work is proportional to change. So every 20% down in terms of, uh, vol- of traffic volumes meant a, a significant business decision I had to make. And every 20% recovery was, again, a significant business decision that I had to make. And so it's not as if, I mean, obviously, more, more traffic better than less, but it is change that actually causes a lot of the work. So um, I'd say not so much for Gojek, but for myself personally, I felt the, the rapidly changing conditions just meant that we, we collectively had to just keep on top of it. What did it mean for Gojek as a business? As you know, I mean, if you look at my background, uh, this is a, a driver partner, and we are ultimately here to we are ultimately here to serve the customers, the consumers through the on-demand services, and within the broader group, that's e-commerce and finance as well. But in Gojek, it is about delivering food, delivering people, moving the parcels around, um, and that is done by the driver partners. It is fulfilled by the driver partners, and the driver partners are the ones who found it very difficult to uh, uh, make, make, make an earnings during that period. So whether it is supplement, supplementary um, you know, money that we offered to them, whether it was taking away the commissions that Gojek charged, or even more recently, we added on a fuel surcharge so that uh, they could help defray the cost of rising fuel, which is uh, one of their largest operating expenses. We've done everything that we could to support the driver partners so that they could stay sustainable because ultimately they are the bedrock on which our business is uh, operates on. So let's talk about this driver partner relationship a little bit. I have you know seen stories and case studies around Uber and other large uh, you know driving partnership platforms and each founder seems to have you know, slightly different take on this relationship between the company and the driver partners. Uh, give us a sense of the uh, uh, responsibility and the, I don't know, the, the burden sharing that, that transpires when you have a model like this. Hmm. Gojek started in Indonesia. The name itself, Ojek, is a motorcycle taxi. And it was a fragmented... Uh, service that had slightly lower levels of reliability. People were uncertain about what they could get. And, uh, and, and so that's how we started Gojek at that, at that point in time. And the social cause and the social mission has been very apparent from, from day one. Uh, there are many stories of the merchants that have been enabled on Gojek, uh, even through the pandemic, to be able to provide a livelihood for their families Similar, similarly, for the driver partners, who uh, have, I, th- I think, I, I think the statistic is it accounts for one two percent of Indonesia's GDP now. You know, transacted through uh, the on-demand services that uh, Gojek offers. I'm, I may be wrong on the number, but I think it's roughly in, in that ballpark. So it is a massive. It is important. It's, it's massively important to the broader economy, to the consumers that is unlocked, but uh, even more so for the merchants and the driver partners that are on the platform. And whether it's in Vietnam or even in Singapore, the social cost, the social impact, uh, and the social impact because of the commercial impact. If you don't scale and you don't have big commercial impact, then you know the social impact also may not be quite as large. So I think because of the commercial impact, we never forget the social aspect to it as well. 
I'll give you a very, very specific scenario. This happened to me yesterday, actually. Uh, I was talking to a driver and he said that he used to work for a different ride share, uh, hailing platform. And um, the ride that he had, uh, somebody vomited in the car and he had a big cleaning bill. And the ride hailing company basically told him that that was his problem other than like a $30 you know, flat fee they give for cleaning, whereas his liability was much larger. So that incident alone, where the company may have had a set of practice, which from the company's perspective was good practice, but from this driver who had experienced a tail risk, if you will, was that, you know, he was sort of, you know, let down by the the uh, uh, company. And he basically stopped working for that uh, because, you know, there are other companies to work for and therefore he just moved on from that platform. But that was all it took, that one incident. Um, so do you find situations like this often, that this is a very... Um, sensitive, volatile group of uh, driver partners and you have to be extremely careful in dealing with them? I would say it's not that the request is unreasonable, but it is uh, it is the value of having competition. It is the value of having alternatives and the value of having choices. And many people talk about ride hailing being a commodity product, which in a sense it might be, but there is great value to the market. And to the market, meaning both to the customers as well as to the drivers that there is choice. The instant you have a monopoly, and I'm not I'm not talking about any specific company, but in all examples you see, when you have a monopoly, then you just become less sensitive to market signals. You become less sensitive to competition signals. You try a little bit less hard, if you will. And that's true of any monopoly. So... Uh, we and, and you know we operate in an open and contested marketplace, and that is one of the values of just having competitors keep you on your toes, as a general principle. And then more specifically, we always try our best to um, take care of driver partners. We can't manage all TLN risk. Uh, I mean, you're an economist, so uh, there's a. On the other end, on the other hand, there may be ill intentions. Uh, we try to support as best as we can. And we definitely do listen to the concerns of uh, every single driver partner. The answer may not be yes, but at least I guarantee that you'll, you'll have a, you have a year that does listen to you and does its best to manage your specific situation. And if that specific situation keeps popping up categorically, then it's something that we'll try to address as a system. Yeah, I think that's the absolute right way of approaching it. Just as a rejoinder to what you just said, that driver also, his key complaint was that, you know, it took him a very long time to get heard. Uh, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, from your approach, I can see that that is a issue that you, of course, uh, are keen to address on a, on a force, forceful manner. Um, you have access to very good quality high-frequency data. You probably know exactly how many riderships took place yesterday uh, in Singapore. Uh, what's your sense of the um, economic recovery and ridership coming back? Um. A lot of it, well, it's primarily macro-related. The rules and regulations are opening up. Uh, one interesting nugget that we saw was, uh, you would think that everyone has gotten used to Trace Together by now. But one interesting nugget we saw was that uh, when Trace Together uh, ceased um, to sort of be mandatory at the entry point of all the malls, mall destination trips was up significantly yesterday. So you think that things are priced in, but actually there is still there is still friction. So it was it was it was actually I'm not sure whether it's one off. I'll I'll look at it today as well. But uh, so anyway, it might be just a spurious anecdote. But that was uh, that was kind of interesting. 
Uh, obviously, ridership is going up. You know, people are circulating. We can all see it with our eyes and our own experiences and 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 going out there. Domestically, at least within Singapore, things are looking very positive. Good to know. Uh, now, of course, speaking of macro, I mean, we are at a juncture where it is becoming a bit uncomfortable. You know, fuel prices are soaring, food prices are picking up, and of course, interest rates are going up. Um, so, so this sort of you know food fuel inflation, interest rates going up. Uh, how do you see it affecting both your you know customers as well as your own business strategy? Yeah. Um, transport as a transport as a as, as a bucket. Well, transport as a cost bucket. You know, uh, for for most commuters. I mean, the good thing about Singapore. Actually, I always say this: the biggest competitor that we have is not um, it's not a, it's not other point-to-point operators. It is the fact that Singapore has a fantastically well-resourced public transport infrastructure. MRT is great. Our buses are great, uh, but there is obviously still a strong need for point-to-point. Whether it's for convenience, whether it's for rain, whether you have some mobility issues, uh, you're going to somewhere a little bit less accessible. I mean, there are many reasons why you still want to do point-to-point. Uh, but it, it is also true that costs have risen. Fuel prices we've talked about with what's happening in Europe at the moment. And uh, so we launched a uh, temporary surcharge, uh, prim- which we passed through to the drivers, primarily to defray the cost of fuel. And this isn't something new. Uh, it's been done in the industry before. Um, hopefully, it is something that will be corrective. The point is, Will inflation be permanently high? Will prices be permanently high? If they won't, then you just take temporary measures to address them. If they're going to be structurally high, then you need uh, slightly more permanent solutions to address them. So temporary salves for temporary pains, slightly more permanent solutions for more permanent pains. And I think uh, what we're seeing in terms of uh, rising CPI, uh, hopefully, is, um, is temporary. Things about housing now, that's that's outside my remit. So right. you might have to speak to other people uh, who have a little bit more of real estate bent uh, uh, about what the price of a GCB is in Singapore. But at least when it comes to transport, uh, we think that this will this will pass. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that, especially with respect to um, fuel prices, uh, already the market is a bit nervous about the outlook with respect to growth, which then has a negative impact on fuel prices. And, you know, we're having this discussion in the middle of April. Uh, we have seen signs of uh, fuel price easing in the last week or so. Not a good backdrop in the sense that it is in the context of slowing growth, but uh, at least that specific pain. Uh, fuel seems to be one of those very sensitive things. You know, anybody who is exposed to the transportation world which is most of everyone immediately reacts to that, you know, 10 cent, 20 cent rise in per liter fuel prices. And it seems to have a disproportionate impact on people's sense of well-being. So the sooner it abates, uh, the better, I'm sure, for all of us. I want to switch away. I mean, just, from, but just to, yeah, just, to, just to jump on that, uh, the two, the, you know, I wasn't a very good student, but uh, one of the things I did learn in the economics class was the two prices that most matter in the world are the two most upstream ones, which is the price of money, which is your interest rates, and the price of fuel, which powers everything else in our modern industrialized uh, 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 sort of economy. And so, I mean, understandably, these are the two things which uh, people like yourself who look over it every single day. I mean, that that's that's what we... I mean, I was actually just reading the um, biography of uh, Jeremy Haywood, 
And he spent a lot of time in the British uh, Ministry of Finance. And it was all about interest rates and interest rate mechanisms and the you know European Monetary Union. Fascinating history, which can be a little bit dry, but these are the things that move our economy and shape where the it's a single number, it's one of the single numbers that matters the most. I'll ask you later about strategy to move away from fuel or fossil fuel to other things, but let's reserve that for a little later. Um, I saw recently, Liam, this article about Gojek's decision to give IPO shares to all 600,000 of your drivers. Can you explain to me the thinking behind that? I think it's a very simple one. Um, driver partners really make Gojek what it is, and we wanted to make every driver partner an owner in Gojek that they will be able to say, this is my company, this is our company, uh, and its future is my future. And that was really the very simple thinking behind granting shares to all the driver partners that are still active on our platform. And the ones who came in earlier, we actually had a different tier of uh, award for them. Simple thinking behind it. Every driver partner is an owner in Gojo. Just one nitty-gritty question. Um, you know, most of your drivers, I'm assuming, don't have a brokerage account or have not dealt with stocks before. So just from a financial infrastructure perspective, was that a very challenging thing to accomplish? There's a lot of education. And I mean, this is really the social responsibility that Gojek has. A move like that, which is well-intentioned, also has to be um, also has to be executed and it has to land well, right? So it's a land well in terms of um, education, uh, investing in stocks, obviously. I mean, we have so much uh, user caution uh, advertising rules in Singapore. Similarly, we don't, we don't want uh, people to be reckless with it. So there is a lot of education around the uh, nature of equity, the nature of stocks. I mean, overall, it's very, very well received. But there's also a lot of education in terms of how to monetize this, how to open a brokerage account, and, and so on and so forth. But uh, I think we've done that outreach you know, very well. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, in my day-to-day dealings, I see so much gap in the field of financial literacy. So for a large company like yours, to push that, uh, I think, is a really commendable effort. Um, Leon, actually, on that, on, on that, on that point, um, one of the reasons why we actually rolled out GoPay and had a wallet was uh, the, this is a well-known statistic for anyone in the financial space or fintech space in Southeast Asia, but uh, Indonesia, large amounts of unbanked, right? A majority are un- un- unbanked. And uh, so when you are taking cash, cash transactions of this high, high, high friction, no ability to put your cash anywhere. And with that, with the advent of GoPay, it was the first time they, they actually had a, a digital store of money that, um, that the drivers could use. And they could obviously use that subsequently to pay for the different transactions without all the old friction of money. Again, a well-known story by the, by the 2020s. But if you think of this five, seven years ago, uh, really transformational. And this is just maybe another, uh, another leg or another step in that journey of uh, digital finance. Yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. Uh, now, we not only have this uncomfortable macro backdrop of you know high rates and inflation and war and all that kind of stuff, um, we are also seeing, at least in the US, but also in China, um, major correction in the tech space. Uh, you know, 
companies have lost hundreds of billions of dollars worth of values just like in the span of three, four months, Netflix being the latest one. Um, so how is that turmoil, that storm that's taking place in the listed equity space, is that, how is that affecting the local startup scene? Uh, happens in a, maybe I'll take a few different segments. Friends said to me, uh, and maybe this is also the internal view that we have. Uh, we're often asked, this is not a good time to list. Why, why is, why is Koto, the parent, our, our parent company, why are we listing now when, you know, all the conditions and the situations that you mentioned uh, are happening? And, and the truth is, um, I think it was Buffett, I'm not sure, who said that in the short run, it's, uh, the stock market is a popularity machine or popularity contest, and in the long run, it's a weighing machine. And we are looking at the long run game. Um, somebody, another friend said, if you start at the low, actually, it's a great, it's a great place if you... If you list at a high, uh, this is not something that we're doing for a day, two days. This is not a fundraising round. IPO is not a fundraising round. It is something that you do in perpetuity. Uh, and so you'll need to have good performance and good growth in perpetuity. From that perspective, the specific timing at which you uh, IPO is not maybe not so relevant. And if you had to pick one, maybe coming in at, 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 at the height of uh, of the cycle may not be quite as uh, beneficial in the long run as coming in at a different part of the cycle. So that's maybe from a timing perspective, but the point is you can't necessarily time, time these things. You don't know what six months from now or 12 months from now will happen. You know, our company was ready, so that's why we chose to do so. That's from a listing perspective. For really early stage startups, um, Maybe it would be different uh, from a sort of fundraising perspective, but if you have good ideas, I'll, I'll switch metaphors a little bit. Think of think of running. Singapore is actually a really bad place to 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 uh, do certain events because it's kind of warm. It, it's 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 uh, it's humid, but it is the same for every single competitor. Everyone out on the lanes, everyone out out on the tracks is experiencing the same heat, same temperature, same rain same humidity that you are doing. And uh, if you're not trying to compare yourself with companies that came 10, 15 years before in a different environment, but you're comparing yourself to the market as it is now, and the market is fair, the external prevailing conditions are fair. It is this, we're all, all out on the running tracks on the, on the lanes at the same time. So from that perspective, I'd say you can compare, you can wish away, you, you, you can wish, but unless you're going to tell an entrepreneur, wait three years, I mean, if the entrepreneur really believes in his company, he's not going to wait three years. He will do it now because his idea is ready now. Could you tell him to do it three years ago? Of course, sure. But unless you have a time machine, that's also not a, a, a readily available or a realistic option. And so what matters much more than the external timing is the power of conviction, the internal belief, the internal direction. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think anyone is going to shape broad strategy around I mean, you've got some flex, three months, six months, but you're, you're not going to say wait a year, wait two years, wait three years to have more certainty. No one's going to do that. I remember um, before the uh, dot-com <coughs> bubble uh, burst, uh, you know, fundraising was so easy and the questions that were asked were almost ridiculously you know, easy to answer. 
And then after that, in 2002 onward, you know, the tech companies that came to the market, A, had to be subject to much tougher grilling from their investors. And of course, they had to start with, you know, much tougher funding environment. Um, are you seeing a parallel to that, that the questions that were asked a couple of years ago versus the questions that are asked now, different order of difficulty? I think they're the same questions. Uh, I mean, this is more, maybe I'd like to turn that question around to you. If you think of, uh, if you think of investors, they are the same questions. The, the decision point is, with the answers that are given, what do you say yes to now versus what do you say yes mm-hmm. to last time and what you'll say yes to in the future? They are the same questions. I won't say they are any more difficult. You know, no, nobody's, nobody's giving us a free pass in, in any way, but it, is, it has always been, do you believe the story and do you believe the, the well, not believe the reality? Do you value the reality, the, the numbers now, and do you value the story for the future? And that's a question for investors to ask. But I would say that if you look at Goto, if you look at the how tightly integrated it is in Indonesia, the value that we bring in Singapore, the uh, the and the similar to Indonesia model that we are executing in Vietnam, I think there is uh, at least the, the markets, the public markets are saying we do value the current and the future potential of this company and what it stands for. Um, earlier, we were talking about high fuel prices and the thing that was coming to my mind, but I held on to that question at that point was, you know, what about, you know, switching the fleets to, you know, electric cars and so on. So, uh, Lian, uh, what do you see in the region uh, with respect to greening the footprint of transportation and logistics? A lot of, um, I'd say, it's not just the region. COVID plus other efforts globally have made climate change really number one on the agenda. So I sit on the Climate Governance Singapore Steering Committee. I also you know, sit on the board of the Center for Social Enterprise. So these are related to the E and the S of the ESG. And obviously, just uh, being a board member or even as a management, uh, there's obviously a strong G angle. So I'd say ESG really has... Uh, become front and center across the consciousness of corporates, of, of people everywhere. Um, PMs, uh, you know, at the, at the budget, we talked, you know, the, the, the government basically gave a price to carbon and said that they'll be raising the price of uh, uh, per ton of carbon in emissions gradually over the next several years. Um, so there is a market price to it already. And the, the companies are responding um, the biggest emitters would be things like construction, concrete, transport. Um, so we're all taking steps to green. Uh, Gojek in particular has a, uh, we have a zero, zero, zero policy. Um, and, you know, and, and we think, think uh, so whether it is something around uh, the amount of plastic waste that we generate through uh, food delivery, whether it is Having a fully EV fleet, uh, you know, by 2030, whether it's uh, any of these um, measures, I think we are definitely with the times. And uh, as we speak today, I mean, there there are concrete steps being taken to do those two things, reducing plastic waste and uh, uh, getting a bigger fleet of EVs. Yeah, I mean, so this is the so sorry, I should have, uh, I should have um, 
elaborate it. So our pledge is zero emissions, zero waste, uh, zero barriers by 2030. 2030 isn't a very long time away. Yep, not uh, right. as, as these things, all right? It's, it's, uh, so it, it requires changing now um, from, let's say, take EVs. So uh, we we have uh, EV partnership with, uh, with, with Kogoro, and we'll be rolling out these uh, EV motorcycles in Indonesia. Um, and so environmental sustainability to have the uh, zero emissions and zero waste. I'm trying to pull out the exact specific number here. Uh, okay, actually, it's, it's it's actually a really long line, long long list. But uh, let's just say that um, under underpinning the zero 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 by 2030 is a long list of uh, practices that we we have pledged to publicly and that we we, we commit to. Very good. Um, let me ask you a question that I think first came up in the context of Uber a bunch of years ago, where somebody had heard, uh, I think it was Travis Kalanick, but it could be somebody else from Uber, that the ultimate view was to actually have automated cars because that simplifies uh, the, the ride-hailing operation substantially. Um, so I just want to hear your general view that, you know, technology is very disruptive and it's been through the centuries. Uh, all sorts of jobs get displaced. People then move on to something else and so on. But um, how do you see this issue of you know, striking a balance between embracing innovation and automating jobs away? I think it very much depends on the nature of the job that you that you have. Uh, I mean, and there have been so many sort of historical parallels. Uh, I'll, I'll try a few of them, right? Which uh, I think many people would be familiar with. TV didn't uh, completely displace radio. Uh, but radio is still around, streaming is still around. So de- depending on the industry, you will get two, three, multiple tracks. Um, you still have bespoke uh, sort of artisan craftsmen. You've got mass-produced shoes, but you also have people who like really nice shoes and leather-made shoes, and uh, those craftsmen are still around. You have Casio watches, but you also have um, handmade um, expensive Swiss watches. So it really depends on the industry and there will always be a space for some of these skills. I think the thing I always ask people is uh, maybe you might not want to be a driver, but would you still want to get a driving license? Um, There might be a day in the far future where driving licenses or or there are no humans uh, allowed, right? But I, I don't think that that's coming yet. So maybe it's also around the question of how far or how, how near is that future? Um, more broad. So, the first point I want to make is the te- the industry that you're in really matters. Will there always be a space for some human element to it or some human craftsmanship? I think the answer is yes. Driving maybe a little bit less of a uh, sort of craftsman type of skill. But then the second question there is what is the time horizon at which um, it will come? Third and more broadly, I think is um, I really like how NTUC pitches it. In other jurisdictions and other countries, you have very strong unions who are trying to preserve the jobs. And here, NTUC, uh, their, their mantra, I really like it, is it's it's about taking care of the workers, not taking care of the work. So they don't they they're not they're not wedded to a particular type of activity, but they're wedded to the people that do things. And that that really comes to the point of uh, re-rolling and really supporting the re-rolling and. Even in ride-hailing, we, not just myself, but our competitors, we have uh, reskilling and re-rolling 
abilities for um, for the driver partners. Uh, whether uh, and some of some people are driver partners because it gives them the flexibility to. I, I met one guy. He was actually studying his part time degree, and so driving gave him an income to help support support uh, his his education while he wanted to move into something else. And super happy for him. So to your point about um, the, striking the balance, I'd say uh, the speed at which the innovation comes uh, mm, let's use AV specifically. The speed at which the innovation comes hopefully is in time for social acceptance, ability for uh, for large groups to um, to reroll. Recently, we had a tripartite meeting where the conversation was about autonomous vehicles, and uh, and and signposting that they will come. And this is in a sign of how forward-looking the whole industry is. Whether the regulators, whether the unions, whether the platforms, we're talking about these things early so that uh, workers can be prepared. So the responsibility is to make sure that it's not to deny change; it is to manage the speed of change. And I think we do it pretty well. Um, AVs in particular look like they still are a while away. But if it suddenly turns overnight that, let's say you had a magic wand, tomorrow AVs could be here. Um, I think then it would be a case of really man managing through that transition. But without any magic wands, we're already doing the best we can to signpost, doing the best we can to uh, re-roll and doing the best we can to ensure that people stay sort of culturally, educationally fluid and are willing to re-roll and are willing to take on new things. Um, from your vantage perspective, how many years do you think before we see a sizable number of cars becoming autonomous cars uh, in the, in the right-hailing world? Well... It's a number that's far enough away that I'm sure nobody's going to call me out on it, and uh, and and nobody's going to make ref well. Maybe they might. This is a this is an important podcast, so they may they may do that. So I'm. It's hard pressed to be. It's 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 hard to go out on a limb here. Significant amounts, say, 10, 15 years. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you know the enthusiasm that all the Googles and others had about autonomous vehicles, say five, seven years ago, when it seemed like it was just a question of harnessing enough data and we'll have it. It seems like that's flattened to some extent that, you know, technologically and also from a regulatory perspective, it's not turning out to be that straightforward. Am I missing something here? I think that perception is right. Um, in more controlled environments, so if you talk about ports, ports are, ports are quite well-defined environments. In places like that, in places where you're running a standard loop, I think these are already pretty well known. And uh, no, I mean these are um, these are operating environments where you already have AVs uh, commercially operating. Um, I think when you're exposing them to the full challenge of uh, of of city traffic, then that's where you get so many unpredictable things happening, and it is that tail end. Uh, and there's just so many edge cases. Edge cases are much more the 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 norm than the exception. I think that's where it gets uh, pretty tricky, right? And we're not even talking about different climate conditions. And we just get rain here. But imagine you're in a place that has rain, sleet, snow, hail, maybe some all in the same day. 
that that makes it much more tricky. Yeah, thanks. All of those that you have experienced many times during your various expeditions, <laughs> Leanne. Uh, I think uh, we will end on that note. I really appreciate your uh, sort of you know human angle in in looking at this role of technology and innovation. I really appreciate that. So, good luck with Gojek, and good luck with all your other demanding pursuits. Uh, see you, Leanne. Thanks very much for your time and insights. Thank you, Timer. Real pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, thanks to our listeners too. Uh, Copy Time was produced by Ken Delrich from Spy Studios. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. Copy Time is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 76 episodes of the uh, podcast are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our all research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.